This is Rafat Saeed and welcome to the Sean Newman podcast. Hey folks, welcome to Monday. Welcome to the start of your beautiful work week, wherever you're at. Most likely sitting at home like the rest of us. Um, now you're probably wondering, hey Sean, it's Monday, what are you doing? Well, I was thinking, man, I got a lot of time on my hands. And why not release a couple more episodes? I've uh, got a list of people I want to talk to. They're trapped inside. And so I've started uh, doing it all via computer. I, you probably heard that on the last couple episodes. And um, so what I'm going to do here for the foreseeable future until this COVID-19 thing uh, decides it wants nothing more to do with our minus 20 weather up in Canada is I'm going to release an episode on every Monday and Wednesday. And so I guess my mindset is, A, I got the time, but B, talking to people is just such a stress relief for me. And I know everybody's feeling, you know, cooped up and whatever else. And this is one way I get to uh, relieve some of that stress. I enjoy talking to people, enjoy hearing people's stories. So I'm going to be releasing one every Monday and every Wednesday. Now, a couple of shout outs. I haven't been, uh, I've been slacking. And uh, Chris King had sent... Uh, Jeez, jeez, Redden's voice is unreal. Yeah, no kidding. If you don't know who he's talking about, he's talking about Trevor Redden, the voice of the PA Raiders. He was in it a couple episodes ago, and he isn't lying. He's got a wicked voice. There's a reason he's where he's at. Timmy Priest sent, just finished listening to Chris Weeb's episode and heard Kurt's yesterday. He's talking about Kurt Benzmiller. Freaking beauty job, man. Unreal stories and hearing those things kind of makes a person feel like he's walking the walk with them fellas just wanted to say nice job and hopefully see you get a raise in the fall of 2020 yeah me and you both now if you are a company out there and want to get some free advertising let me know i said it on the last week's episode with jason Greger that uh anyone in that needs to get a message out they're open Home delivery, ooh, bumping things. Uh, I'm a, I I kind of talk with my hands, folks. If you need, you know, you got shortened hours, your doors, whatever, the policies have all changed, let me know. And I'll get you on for free. No charge right now, okay? Here's your factory sports tale of the tape. Today's guest is Raf Saeed, born and raised in India. He became the national rowing champ of India at one point graduated from med school, traveled abroad, finally ended up in the bustling metropolis of Lloydminster, where he got on the inaugural board of Junior A Hockey. Yes, the Lloydminster Lancers that brought the Junior A Hockey to Lloyd. It's almost hard for me to believe, even as I say it, that a guy from India who had never seen a sheet of ice, let alone a hockey game, was now on the board. Pretty cool. Pretty cool story. And then he spent 40 years with the Lancers, which turned into the Blazers, and then the Bobcats. He was a part of uh, the Allen Cup. Like, he's got a very cool story, folks. I think you're going to enjoy this one. So sit back, relax, and without further ado. Well, welcome to the Sean Newman Podcast. Tonight, I'm joined by Mr. Dr. Raft Saeed. So thank you, sir, for uh, joining me tonight. 
Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about your uh, life and uh, some local sports because you've definitely been ingrained in that. Um, maybe some rowing club, maybe some stuff like that. Oh, I love that. But uh, I think maybe uh, the first thing we got to do is, I mean, COVID-19, coronavirus is, well, how many times do we wash hands, sanitizer, everything, right? Like, I mean, it's such a, well, it's all anyone's talking about these days. Unfortunately, that's so true. My only advice is if you don't have to go out, and just don't go out. And if you do go out, stay six feet away from anybody. And to those who suspect they have a cold or a cough, please, for God's sake, stay home. Don't go anywhere for 14 days because you uh, run the risk of infecting others. Uh, if you have to go to a store, make sure you are uh, six feet away from anybody uh, who's in the store. And if the store seems busy, go back later. I thought you had an interesting thing on the phone when we were chatting. I was saying social distancing this, social distancing that, and you kind of corrected me with uh, physical distan uh, distancing. That, that's so important to remember. We need social integration. We need to be uh, talking to people. And sometimes uh, it could be misunderstood, social distancing. The important thing is physical distancing, and they're starting to talk about that on the television as well. Because internet, telephone, all is social integration or social inclusion. So, uh, uh, but physical is a more definite you can grasp at it, physical, six feet, physical distance. Um, whereas social doesn't really grab it for me. You know, uh, I understand what it is, but for the average person, what does social mean? Whereas physical means stay away from me, stay six feet from me. <laughs> no shaking hands. No shaking hands, no hugs, none of the above. Has that uh, been tough on you uh, the last couple of weeks? Well, it has been because... Uh, uh, I, I haven't been able to hug my daughter-in-law, I haven't been able to hug uh, some dear friends, and uh, came close today, and I said, stay away from me. And it was hard to tell, lady, stay away from me, don't come near me. But that's important, it's very important, very important. It doesn't matter if you know the person really well or not. You know, we have neighbors in our uh, cul-de-sac, and one lady, she's a hugger, and it's uh, she says, it's so hard, I can't, I can't do that. But, but that's the way it is, and that's the new normal. Yeah. And maybe this will go on for three to six months. Stay away, physical distancing. As, as you know, as listeners know, I love talking to people. It's, it's different. It's different not being able to converse with everybody on a daily basis or meet anyone or, you know, go for a coffee or whatever you want to do. Uh, can't give anybody a high five. You can't do anybody the pumps. It's, uh, <laughs> it's not easy, but that's the new normal. We've got to get used to it. That's what it is. What do you say to the people who say it's just another flu, Raph? I think they're having nightmares in 3D Technicolor myself if they think it's just the flu. It's a nightmare, and it's not a flu. It is nothing like a flu. It may have the the distant relative of the influenza, if that, but no, it's not. It's a different brand, and um, uh, it is more vicious. And if you if you have the symptoms and it progresses, it will kill you unless 
you are able to get some kind of support you get nausea you can't eat anything you get headache you sweat your fever your chest is tight you can't take a deep breath and you have a cough it's not like the flu it's not like the flu in your career did you ever deal with anything similar to this or is this uh once in a i mean i know they they bring up 1918 um sars stuff like that but around this area have we ever seen anything we've never seen anything like that we've as far as i know we've never had a case of sars here um 1957 i wasn't around (laughs) (laughs) um i was born but not around here um no i mean we have i have had uh, pneumonias and and um, stuff like that but uh, nothing where uh, and of course we've had some asthmas which are bad but nothing like what i've heard symptoms uh, of people who've got who've had it well let's uh let's start well you were born back in 1950 in now am i going to say this right madras madras india india and the name has now been changed to chennai but i prefer to call it madras still and i was doing some looking i don't know what it was when you were born or you're when you were there as a, a child but now it's about 7 million people 7 to 8 million people that is correct and so i'm curious what growing up in that was like well um i can tell the difference since <laughs> i've been there a year ago and when i grew up uh, streets were actually empty and pleasant to drive on uh there were no traffic jams um it took us 10 minutes uh, to go to school by car uh today that same distance if i had to go to school with a, in a car or my ch- children or somebody has to go to school it'll be 45 minutes it's only a distance of about 3 kilometers 3 to 4 kilometers uh, uh right now uh the place has changed uh there was only one skyscraper and it was 13 stories high and there was an office building belonging to an insurance company today it is skyscrapers everywhere residential skyscrapers everywhere office buildings everywhere uh, if you if i hadn't been going regularly it would have been unrecognizable how often me. how often do you go back well, every two years uh, every every year sometimes every two years i started going every year sometime to the in the year 2000 okay uh just to get away from the winters for a month but i've uh, been with the kids um at least every 3 years with the kids when they were younger what's what's the weather like in our winter or what's the weather like there i guess that's just the in only, general that's the only time to go is in our winter from november to maybe march otherwise they have three seasons it's hot hotter and hottest <laughs> uh, summer is exceptionally hot can be 104 105 in the shade maybe sometimes go up to 108 in the shade uh, but the winters november december january february um usually it's in the um from anywhere from uh, 18 19 at night uh, to say 26 in the day so it's very pleasant and that's why um, after the kids grew up we went in the winters Now going back to when you're a kid growing up there um guys of your age around here were going to walking to school 
we're going to a one-room schoolhouse. Uh, we're dealing with several different shades of cold, colder, and coldest. Um, maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about your school days growing up in India. Well, um, my elementary school was in a uh, school that was run by the Jesuit order of uh, Catholics. Um, it was called the Church of the Good Shepherd Convent. Um, and the first five years were co-ed. Then after that, I went to an Anglican missionary school. Um, now, we had lots of grades and lots of classrooms in the elementary school. It was not a one-room school, grade one, grade two, grade. It was two grade ones and two grade twos and uh, two kindergartens. And similarly, when I went to the uh, Anglican, uh, the middle school and high school, they were combined. I, uh, there was at least uh, five classes in each grade. Um, or five rooms in each grade. And uh, following that, I went to college, again, to Loyola College, which is, again, run by the Jesuit uh, order. And uh, then I went down to med school. You say co-ed for the first five years. Then am I to presume after that it was all boys? After that was, no, that school was all girls, and we had to go to a different school. And R that was a school run by Anglican missionaries. Why, do you remember why that was? Because they didn't believe in co-ed, and the nuns were very strict and didn't even want boys and girls to mingle. They were quite conservative. And uh, so uh, we were cut off from the girls, and we had to go to a total boys' school. <laughs> what was total boys' school like? Oh, it was fun. It was good. And we enjoyed ourselves. We uh, entertained ourselves. We didn't miss any girls. We were quite, quite content and happy, you know, uh, uh, playing the things that, that what uh, young boys used to do, you know, robber and police and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cowboys and Indians and all those things which are kind of not really politically correct these days. But we, we played all the games that probably kids played here. We played cricket. We played uh, soccer, which were there we called football. We played softball. Uh, basketball uh, and uh, what's come back we played was uh, we played pickleball and I, it was not called pickleball then it was called padded tennis because the same kind of bat except the 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 uh, screen the net the net was low down just like pickleball and uh, so it, it uh, we, we played everything that people played here we I don't think we played baseball I like to comment you'd, you'd sent along was youngest in the class to not physically develop for land-based sports. Were you trying to say you were small and that essentially you couldn't compete? No, I was, I was big, but I wasn't developed. And I was sent to kindergarten. I didn't I miss kindergarten. I was in grade one at age four. So you imagine the kids who were in grade one had already been to a lower kg upper kg grade one and they were all six years old and i was four years old so why was that because my my mother did not believe in kindergarten she thought it was a waste of time and she managed to get me into grade one at age four so do you think that helped you 
Well, that's why my handwriting is so poor. I failed handwriting in grade one because, again, you know, uh, it's important for development um, to, to go through those stages, um, physical and fine motor. Uh, I don't know if it helped me or not, but I didn't, don't think I was hindered. Uh, it certainly didn't help me in sports because they, all the kids were two years older than me. Yeah. You know, right through, right through uh, uh, and until I started swimming, uh, where uh, that was a leveler. Uh, but uh, land-based sports, uh, athletics, um, uh, I couldn't compete with boys who were two years older than me in the class. Even though I was big, I was not small. I was big. So were all sports school sports then, Raf? Yes, all sports were all, all sports were school sports. Uh, all of them. So were, it always went on grade and not age then. It it went on grade. Um, swimming was uh, not uh, was all the other schools, and um, there it was not uh, grade grade or uh, age. It was. Uh, uh, age differential, like we have uh, here, you know, f- from six to nine, you're in one category, and nine right. to twelve, right. you're in another category. And uh, there, I did all right. I I was a competitive swimmer, and I I, I did quite well actually. I won quite a few uh, swimming championships or races in your younger years. In my younger years, I was swimming till I was went to med school. Competitive swimming till I went to med school. Uh, my last swim race was a fifteen hundred meter uh, swim. I remember that. That's the last time, and I think that was in first year med school. Why did you quit swimming? My parents said I better go practice, work on becoming a good doctor, and I have to work hard and enough of competitive swimming. But I went swimming for exercise, but not competition because you had to work really really hard uh, to stay competitive and so I did swim but I didn't uh, uh, race in any competitions so I just swam to stay fit. Do you still swim? Uh, Not much, not much. Then I took up rowing. Yes, I've heard about this rowing. So how do you stumble into rowing? Ah, You used a fantastic word stumble, literally stumbled into it. Uh, um, a fellow who was uh, one year my junior in med school, uh, want, uh, it was 1970, um, wanted me to teach him and correct his style of swimming. So he, uh, we went to the swimming pool. And um, after spending an hour and a half, he said, uh, can, you, can we swing by the rowing club? So I swung by the rowing club with him. Uh, I was in my car, and um, uh, there I saw all these shiny, long uh, boats that I only seen pictures of. And I had maybe seen the odd movie with these boats, the Oxford Cambridge. And so I was stung by it, but I knew that I was in med school. I knew that my parents would not allow me to join the club. So anyway, uh, this fellow was interviewed by the captain of boats, and uh, they 
um, said to him, how tall are you? He said, five, eight and a half. And how heavy are you? 150. And they wanted to have a competitive team and they had set a upper limit of, uh, or a lower limit of five foot nine and it had to be 150 pounds at least. So then they looked at me and I was 5'11 and three quarters and about 175, 180 pounds at that time. And uh, they said, would you like to try? And I said, no, my parents won't let me. Uh, I don't think I should even try. I said, think about it. Uh, and then they said, um, if you last 30 days, we'll take him. And uh, I have an animal brain sometimes. I don't like people challenging me like that. <laughs> so I said, I'm in. I'll figure it out how I'll tell my parents later. So I said, I'm in. And 30 days later, I said, I hung on. It was very vigorous, hard. The buggers, sorry I use that word, they tried to break me. And I didn't break. And so then uh, he got in. And that's how I stumbled upon rowing. And so I've that, never regretted it. So how long did you row for? Rode for four years. In university? In, yeah. For in the university, university team? No, for, uh, for the state. Uh, there was club teams. So you rode against other clubs. And you rode against clubs in, uh, in Asia, uh, as far away as Hong Kong. And uh, uh, you rode against them because they were all clubs in those days. India did not have a national team or a rowing federation. So you just rode against clubs in Colombo, in Sri Lanka, in, in Pakistan, in Hong Kong, Singapore, clubs like they all had clubs. It's, it was started by the British. Rowing was started by the British. So I rode um, uh, for four years. And then I left for uh, Canada via England. Let's uh, go. Let's stay with rowing for a second here. Because okay. you've kind of been all over the place with rowing then. Well, in my yes, mind. And yes, I don't know yes, yes. the distance. Yes. First of all, all over India. You had to go to different clubs because they had annual... Uh, races, regattas, in in uh, different locations. So it could be in Calcutta one time, it could be in in um, Pune, which is close to Bombay, or it could be in Madras, it could be in Sri Lanka, uh, you know, and so all, you, you travel all over the place. So, yeah, I've been, been to quite a few places. It did help me travel, but I didn't get to tell my parents for three months. I forgot to tell you that. <laughs> they didn't know about it. I was sneaking away in their mind to the swimming pool because that I was allowed to do, but not rowing. Till one, till one day, I won a major, major event, and they wanted me for the prize distribution. And I said, I can't come. They said, you have to, your team is going to be there. I said, my parents don't even know I'm a member of this club. So one of the club, one of the club members, senior members said, I know your father, I'll call him. So I went home and sure enough, he called him. Luckily, my father was uh, into sports, not my mother so much because my mother said, you have to study. So my father says, mm -hmm, how long has this been going on? And I said, for three months, four months. Said, I see. Said, all right, you can go for the price distribution. So that's how I became legally in the rowing club. Until then, no. So it's interesting. How about your parents? You said in the text they were you were raised very strict. 
What does very strict mean? Well, I had curfew. Even when I was in med school, I had curfew. That Cur- your parents enforced? My parents enforced, 9 o'clock. And, of course, when I was rowing, I was double curfew. My rowing coach will call at 9 o'clock. I had to be in bed at 9. So it was... Uh, it was a double. My parents made sure, and my rowing coach called my parents and said, is he in bed? So uh, 9 o'clock was curfew uh, all the time. Uh, it was only after I was in my residency that uh, there was no curfew because now I had to go to the hospital and stay in the hospital, so that was fine. Can you imagine in this town, in this country, your kids are in university and you're calling for their curfew? I know. They'll probably tell you to go to hell. <laughs> Not probably. I'm sure they will say go to hell. Oh, you know, it was quite strict. It was quite strict. And, I, and you know what? I don't regret it because otherwise I don't know if I would have finished uh, medicine. You know, uh, I like to play a lot. I like to have fun. So I'm glad my parents set some rules down and it worked out okay. How many years were you in university? Seven. Seven. Yeah, including med school, yes. Did you always want to be a doctor? Uh, Not really. Initially, I wanted to be a lawyer, and then I wanted to be a politician. I wanted to help people. Uh, My parents um, uh, said uh, becoming a politician is like rolling the dice. You may not be able to help people. But being a doctor, you would definitely be able to help people. And um, uh, it's, it's a guarantee that... You know, you have a chance, a good chance of making sick people better. But a politician, you can't change the universe because you got to work with so many other people. So I said, okay, took my took their advice. And uh, also they took me to some other people who also uh, gave me a similar advice that being a lawyer, you have to be a lawyer first. And and then you have to try to get elected. And then after that, you, you if you're if you're in gay, in game was going to become a politician is unlikely uh, you would become one and if you do it's unlikely you'll be able to do anything to help people so what do you think of the politicians we got running the our country and down south trump and trudeau i think people have become politicians have are not the politicians of the old days where they serve the people i think today they serve themselves i'm sorry to say that many of them, I shouldn't generalize, that many of them want to serve themselves. Um, uh, It used to be that a politician, being a politician was a noble thing. It was service to your fellow people and your fellow humanity. Uh, But now when you see the class of politicians in the world, especially our leaders, many of them uh, are there for themselves and want to stay in power. It's disappointing, but Again, young people don't want to get involved in politics because of that, and it's a catch-22. If uh, young people uh, get involved and then they choose the kind of person who they want to represent them, then it'll be a different story. It'd be nice if there's some people wanting to run for politicians, is what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. Some good people need to run, and um, uh, we have some good people now in our in, in Lloydminster, I'm quite pleased with the, our current uh, uh, representatives, but um, I don't think that's the same everywhere. 
I don't think that's well, you can almost guarantee it, Raph. That's not everywhere. That's not everywhere. That's no. not everywhere. Guarantee. You're right. You're right. You're right. Like, I know of politicians who don't return phone calls to their constituents. I know of politicians who say, I'm at a hockey game and I don't want to be disturbed. Um, call me in my office uh, you know, on Monday. Like, being a politician is not a nine-to-five job. If you want a nine-to-five job, you should go and choose something else. When you graduate from uh, med school, did you want to leave India? Was that something that you kind of grown up with thinking, I'm going to leave here? Or did you love it there and you wanted to stay? I left India, so I'll return back in five years. I promised all my friends. I was going to make a stop in, in England because of England's history with India. I then was going to um, go to the United States because at that time I thought I thought at that time United States was the greatest country um, in the world. Since then I've uh, I've realized that it is not, and then Australia because it was exotic and go back to India. So you know go around the globe. Okay, so, so where did you first go then? I went to England. Whereabouts in England did you? Go? I was in a place called Leicester. Well, my first job was up in Northern England. Then I was in Leicester, uh, and um, and for a year. Uh, for 20 months. 20 months, okay. Yeah. And what did you think of uh, England? England was nice, but it was time to go. You know, it was time to leave because I wanted to go. So I actually... How, how old are you at this time? At, the, I, at this time, I was uh, 26. 26. I came to Lloyd... No, 25. I, I hadn't turned 26 when I came to Lloydminster. I was still 25. And Were you married at all? No. No. No kids then, no nothing, marriage, nothing. nothing. So nothing. you're just a young guy bouncing around the world being a doctor. Footloose and fancy free. Never had a thought of staying in Britain? No. Okay, where do you go after Britain? All my then? friends were in Britain. And they're still there, many of them, my classmates. Really? Yeah, they wanted me to stay. No, I said, I'm going back to India. And the reason I ended up in Canada and not in the United States was my sister lived in Edmonton. And she said, if you're going to stay in the North American continent for a year, why not come and stay close to us as a family? So she was in Edmonton. I, I found a job in Lloydminster. Did you never, before we get to Lloyd, did you never make it to Australia or the United States then? No. Well, I went to the United States just to visit friends, and they wanted me to stay there. And <laughs> oh, Where did you go? Uh, I, had my, I had my papers, New York. I was in New York. I had my papers. My my cousin was chief resident. He said, I can get you a job here, like any time. Meanwhile, my sister says, come and be with family. So family is important, so I came. And after all, it was only going to be one year. Growing up, did you guys travel lots? Yeah, I traveled a bit, not lots. Traveled with my parents. Uh, traveled with, with the rowing team. Uh, what would have been, like... But I did want to travel the world. But, did, like, was... Was Britain eye-opening for you when you landed there and you're like, oh, this is Britain, or were you just off the plane and you're like, ah, geez, I thought it'd be different. Mm. It was, well, English, uh, I could speak English. English was a common language. And um, we grew up with a lot of British traditions, English traditions. So it wasn't that... That different? That different. How many languages can you speak? Three. Three? Yeah. English? English. Uh, Urdu and Tamil, the, the language of my native state, uh, the state where I was born in, Madras. Three languages, yeah. That's something that's... Uh, did your kids... Did you ever teach your kids that? Uh, 
I taught. <laughs> I tried. I tried. My oldest son, uh, he could under. He can understand. My second son, somewhat. My third son, even less. And my fourth son, not at all. Not at all. He can't. I don't Sammy think. Sammy can. Can I? He can't even say water. I don't think he can say water. <laughs> Sammy. Sammy can't say water. In, I, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think when you landed in New York? Because, I, I mean... New York was different. It was different. Not like England. No. It was totally different. It was uh, it was, it was an eye-opener. New York was an eye-opener. Um, see, you read about a lot about British history and English history. So you, you knew uh, uh, much of England already before uh, we got there. But the U.S., we didn't read that much. Uh, we knew about the War of Independence. And, uh, well, I personally took on uh, learning about the U.S. and because of the Second World War and Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy. And uh, I kept track through the news. And I even memorized John Kennedy's inaugural ad address when I was 11 years old. So, and Abraham Lincoln, I memorized his speeches because my father raised me to be a citizen of the world. So I remember his Gettysburg Address of Abraham Lincoln. So, um, but the city of New York and the hustle and bustle was different. When you say your father raised you to be a citizen of the world, could you expand on that? Uh, my father was a very liberal, broad-minded person. And he taught us that there was more to the world than just Madras, our home state, or India. So many a time we would have visitors from other countries, uh, from the um, uh, brogue spo spoken by a Scottish chap to the Englishman, to the f fellow from the USA, to somebody from Nigeria. Uh, so they were, we used to have lots of visitors. So, uh, and my father was involved in a lot of social uh, justice activities, so that's how he came across all these people. And so he said, you, you need to know about the world. So we grew. I grew up with a special interest in reading different parts of the world. That's pretty. Uh, I think a lot of people should have that. You know that opportunity, like to learn about outside their bubble, it can really expand your uh, view and horizons. That's right. I, I'm I'm a little disappointed that people. Um, in in some parts of Canada, don't even know what happens in Newfoundland, for example. You know, Newfoundland is completely different. It's an eye opener. People should go visit Newfoundland. Take it, go there for a holiday. Uh, amazing place, amazing place. You know, just like they need to come and see the prairies uh, from Newfoundland or from from eastern Canada. I'm not talking of Toronto. Or I'm talking of the eastern Canada, not central Canada. Uh, because we have a different way of li uh, lifestyle here. Our culture is different. But the commonality between those in eastern Canada and those in the prairies, I feel, is the people are warm, affectionate, and welcoming, as opposed to the hustle and bustle of the central Canada, the big cities. You know, uh, it's interesting you bring up Newfoundland. When... Dustin, my second oldest brother, came back from uh, traveling the world. He'd 
left for about a year back in his early 20s. When we came up with the idea of biking Canada, I remember asking him in the car ride to Edmonton if he could go to one place that he hadn't been yet, where would he go? And he said, you know, it's funny, all the places I've ever been in around the world, uh, he said, I didn't know enough about Canada because people ask me about it all the time and I hadn't been across it. I'd only been out at the time, I think, to, I think I want to say like maybe Toronto, maybe, but like, you know, BC across to there, I'd played hockey in Ontario, so they'd come out a couple times, but never any further than that. And you think Canada's a, a giant chunk of land and you're absolutely right. When we went out there, all I ever heard growing up was how rude and ignorant and everything else, right, that you get said about Quebec. Because, I mean, uh, the Quebec government doesn't help out the West very much. I, I think that's pretty easy to see. And there's some things going on uh, that, rightfully so, Alberta in particular, are very upset about. But, you know, in Quebec, they were fantastic people. We never got treated rudely or anything. Um, in Ontario, which I always got told about uh, rudeness and um, just the the demeanor of the people from that province. Uh, once again, the nicest person we ever met in the entire bike trip came in Ottawa, right? And so it's all about going out and experiencing the world. And so when you, uh, you talk about that, that makes, it's a very interesting. It's something that your father wanted you to learn. And it's probably something that more kids should learn uh, and I find specifically today with social media and uh, technology the world should be smaller than everywhere you should learn about everywhere but instead you learn about less and less and just your people and everybody else's you know screw them yeah I, if I may add to that people in Eastern Canada um, are more content and they have less than we do and yet their homes are immaculate, their lawns are well manicured, and I, I have a special closeness to Prince Edward Island. And you know the top speed limit in Prince Edward Island is 90 kilometers an hour, and that's on Trans-Canada. Everywhere else it's between 80 and 70 kilometers, and life is really slow. It's like, like the 50s in the prairies, and the people are, are again, welcoming so the 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 maritimes and or the atlantic canada is a is a different culture maybe because they're on the water maybe uh, you know pei and and uh, newfoundland are islands you know island people also have a different kind of culture i i love um, eastern canada especially prince edward island yeah and beautiful beautiful uh, landscape yeah, beautiful. 1,800 kilometers of coastline in Prince Edward Island. Just beautiful. Lovely beaches everywhere. Turn turn right or anywhere or sometimes turn left and there you are. Beautiful beach and nobody there. It's just a wonderful place. Well, what did you think of landing? Did you fly into Edmonton? Yes. No. I flew into... Yes, I flew into Edmonton. That's right. I did, actually. Well, let's back well, that up a second. What? How? Did, how many flights at that time did it take to well, get to Edmonton? Okay. What was the What was the travel like to get here? Okay, um, it was from Madras to Bombay, Bombay to Cairo, and they had to refuel, Cairo to Amsterdam, 
Amsterdam to London and London to Edmonton. Holy Dinah. So how many days did that take? Oh, well, I stopped. I took the opportunity to stop in Amsterdam. <laughs> you know, I told you I like to travel. So I stopped in Amsterdam, spent three days there. Uh, I had some three or four days. I had a friend there. And I stopped in London. Um, I had some friends there as well. Uh, I was there for a week. Uh, and then uh, I came to Edmonton. You didn't go tour in Cairo? I didn't tour in Cairo. No friends there at that time. I did go to Cairo eventually in 2001, but no friends in what Cairo. What do you think of Cairo? Um, amazing place. Again, history. Uh, again, the people do with less and friendly people. Crowded, of course, but friendly people. Like you said, people are the same everywhere in the world. We need to get to know them. We need to get to know what makes them tick. And um, sometimes we generalize too much. Like you say, Quebec. Well, there's great people in Quebec. Uh, there's great people in, in Ontario. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes the governments don't, res, uh, shall I say, reflect what the people are like. I mean, look at the USA for right now. If you take uh, the government, governments, both parties, uh, you would think it's not a very good country, but the people make the country, and the people are, by and large, good people. Yeah, well, I'm married to one of those people. My yeah. wife's from Minnesota. There's some pretty awesome Americans out there, but yeah. it's... I, I tell you, you know, with this COVID-19 going on right now, Raph, you got pretty much every government does a daily update, right? So you got Trudeau does it. You got an Alberta, Saskatchewan, they're doing it, Kenny and Mo, And then Trump does his thing. And if you listen to, well, you listen to any Canadian one, it's like ask a question, he gives you an answer. Ask a question, gives an answer. And it's like 40 minutes maybe of kind of like, Yep, here's what we're trying to do, blah, 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 right? Okay, thanks for everybody coming up. And then if you listen to a Trump one, it is it is like it's a straight-off reality TV show. Bizarre. Yeah, like it's hard to believe. Well, damn, it's almost entertaining to just sit there and like listen to what is going on. Like I can't imagine if, uh, well, let's use Alberta. Let's use Jason Kenney. If he started just bashing reporters and being like, should probably get you out of here, and this is all fake news. And I'm not saying Trump's all bad. He's done some uh, really good things, but you listen to him during the last, like, month, and some of it will just make you shake your head. I, I have to agree with you. It is um, it's sad the way he treats the reporters, uh, most of them, most of the reporters. Uh, any controversial question... Uh, he seems to run the reporter down or run the network down. And um, uh, I just saw today, uh, he was giving hell to a CNN person saying, that's why you're not the most trusted network. That's why nobody watches you. That's why your ratings are down. I mean, the guy's doing a job, you know, and, and it's sad. It's sad. I mean, that's not the way you treat people. Well, and, and when... <laughs> You raise a good point. It's not the way you treat people because when your leader is treating people like that, that's going to filter down. Absolutely. Right? It starts at the top. Absolutely. When your leader is treating people down, people take the cues from their leaders. Yeah. And it's okay to run people down. It's sad, but 
that's the reality that's again <laughs> is unfortunately becoming the new normal in the states you know people starting to pick on people whether it's skin color or whether it's uh, um, your social economic status i mean people are being picked on in the states for no reason so let's get back to what you thought of lloyd minster <laughs> I mean, you've gone to New York, London, Cairo, and then you land in Edmonton. See, Lloydminster was an adventure again. You see, I was out for adventure. So I come to Lloydminster, there's 8,500 people. Okay. What year is this? 1975. 1975. October of 1975. And a Greyhound bus pulls into the old... Uh, Alberta Hotel, and the parking lot is not paid. You took a Greyhound bus into town? Uh, yeah, and and um, it was just like the movies. The Greyhound bus pulls in, and dust all over the place, and the, the, the restaurant and the bar had screen doors, and those flimsy screen doors, because it was uh, October sometime, or, or September. September? No, maybe it was August. First time I came here. Then I came back in in, Octo- uh, in uh, October, and um, well, it was like a, a cowboy movies, expecting somebody to come out with a six shooter and start shooting people. <laughs> but anyway, uh, then I came. I started work in in January, end of January, uh, early February, I think it was, and. Um, uh, I joined the uh, the clinic, uh, the family. Uh, at that time, it was called the medical and dental clinic. And again, I was only here for one year. So what the hell? You know, do what you can. And not in a hurry. I used to see two people a week because uh, that's the way it was. There was no advertising and it had to be word of mouth. My first week, I think I saw three or four people. Uh, and then the next week I saw seven or eight, and the next week it went on, and that's how I built up my practice. And it was only going to be for a year, so I was not in a in a hurry to build about build up a big practice uh, in the beginning. So then, what is it about Lloyd that kept you? Okay, a chap called Art Gellert, big man. He worked for then one of the newspapers. I can't remember it was the Booster or the Times. The Times. The Lloydminster Times he was working for. And he looked at me and he said, hmm, you'd make a good Lions Club member. <laughs> and I said, I had heard of the Lions Club. My father's friends were members of the Lions Club. I said, yeah, I'll give it a shot. So I joined the Lions Club. Then came Tom Countryman, who was the trainer for the Blazers, the Junior B Blazers, and he dropped into my office in July. But this time, word had spread that maybe I was interested in sports. And so he said, we're looking for a doctor for the hockey team. I said, I don't know anything about hockey. I've never seen a sheet of ice. I saw snow in Scotland when I was in Scotland, but I have never seen a sheet of ice. I've only seen pictures of women uh, with skimpy clothes on on skating rinks. And I said, that's the only thing, my closest thing to a skating rink. And he said, all you have to do is come and sit and be um, be uh, present during the games. And uh, I said, okay, I'll do that. So come September, 
uh, I walk into the dressing room and I meet uh, Larry Leach, uh, who was uh, the coach at that time. And I'm sure many people know him. He played for the Boston Bruins for about three seasons. Um, and um, he was tall and skinny with a little wisp of hair. And uh, I, I told him, I'm, I'm, your, I'm, here, I'm your doctor here. And he said, oh, good. He said, where are you from? I said, India. He said, India is a big country. Where from? Oh, I said, usually people don't ask that, that question, you know. I said, oh, maybe you know something about India. So I went straight to the point and I said, South India. I said, where in South India? I said, Madras. Madras, his eyes lit up. And he told me the story right then and there. His father served in the army, Canadian army, training British troops and American troops how to use amphibious tanks on the beaches of my home city, where I used to spend time on the beaches. 1943, far away from German eyes and Japanese eyes, they were planning the invasion and they were using amphibious tanks in 1943. And we became fast friends. I went to his home, became a member of the family, met all his children and uh, and then, of course, continued with hockey. I went to almost every hockey game away and home. Well, let's stop you right there. You can't throw a bomb of a story in there like that and not have a... How crazy is that? It is absolutely crazy. Absolutely. Such did a small you, did world. You, did, you know, a... did you know about that story before? No, he told me. Growing up in Madras, you no, never heard nobody the story? Ever. We heard of one German ship that came and shelled uh, Madras in the First World War, and that was it, and never heard of anything. Nobody ever told me that uh, they were doing these exercises right on the beaches that I used to go and swim. Wow. Yeah. Come it to a little town like Minster Lloyd to Minster. hear that. Isn't that funny how imagine, the world works? Imagine. That's how small the world is, and that's why my father said, world citizen. You never know who you'd meet, where you'd meet, and... Uh, Lasting friendship. And I can tell you that's why I stayed in Leidminster, the Lions Club uh, and and uh, uh, hockey. And uh, hockey, I realized, is uh, not just a sport in smaller uh, cities. It builds community. And I'm here. I'm here. I'm a doctor here. I've been a doctor here. I would tell you, I, I would have gone. Uh, because uh, year, in December, we were... Uh, Winning that, that that team was a winning team. It had um, 32 consecutive wins on uh, a 40 game schedule, uh, two ties, and four losses. Uh, how much does that make it? Yeah, 36, 32, and then there was two more games. But the the, the team was amazing. And this is Junior B. Junior B. 32 what? consecutive wins. Is that uh, were you playing in Saskatchewan at that time? We were playing um, no. Uh, we played Vermillion, Wainwright, Barhead, Edson, uh, Jasper. Um, uh, where else did we play? Um, then we in the provincials. Uh, we went. We went to uh, Vulcan and won won the Alberta championship. Um, so no, we played in Alberta. There was no Saskatchewan. It was all Alberta. Wainwright, yeah, Wagerville, uh, Vermillion. What on earth did you think of the game of hockey when you first set eyes on it? Oh, fascinating game. 
who was a, a, a wonderful, fast game, was fascinating. It was diff different than any sport I'd ever been involved in. Um, and uh, I was just totally taken up by the players, uh, by the coach, uh, by the trainer, Larry Bright. I mean, it was just like family. I was a part of their family. What did you think of your first fight when you saw it back then? Uh, that was interesting uh, because in field hockey, if you fought, you were kicked out for a long time. But in um, in in uh, hockey, uh, it seemed like it was okay. It was part of the game. And I, I, I asked uh, uh, Larry, uh, how come this is allowed? And he said, <laughs> <laughs> he says, that is the game. It is allowed and it's a game of intimidation and you have to protect your players. You have to protect your weaker player. If somebody picks on your player or picks on your goalie, the guy deserves a good thrashing so they won't do it again. And that's the way it is. And Larry was a fighter when he played hockey. He showed me his face. He had 75 stitches on his face. Right across his nose, on one below his left eye and onto his right eye and over his nose. So... It was fascinating. A great, great, it, it is a fantastic, a great game. Well, you're surrounded. You can tell I enjoy the game of hockey as well. Yeah, yes. When you talked to your family and said, I think I've found the spot, do you remember that conversation? Yes. What was said in that conversation? How did your parents react to it? You can't stay there. You have to go and specialize. You can't be a GP. That's what my father said. You no, know, no, no, no. You have to specialize. Your sister's a specialist. Your friends are specialists. I said, I like it here. I like it here. It took three years for my father to come here to Lloydminster and see the city, meet some of my friends, and then say, hmm, Okay, money is not everything. Because, you know, specialists earn more money. Money is not everything. You're looks like you're happy here, and I'm happy for you. And that was the end of the pressure. No more pressure. You're wearing a Louis Mr. Lancer's jacket. When? Well, actually, I know when. That, when year does that happen? 1982. 82, that's right. So for six years then? Six 70, years. 70, uh, six, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82. Yeah, six, six years, yeah. Six years you do the Junior B full-time? No. We s stepped out of Junior B one year because Saddle Lake uh, and some other teams were uh, in, in, included in the league. And um, Saddle Lake, I remember there was a major fight in the stands, and it was like goon hockey when we played against them. So that year we decided as a board uh, to step out of Junior B and take a break uh, because the coach was fighting, the trainer was fighting, the players were in the stands, both, both sides. It was just ridiculous. It was goon hockey. And so, and they didn't have plexiglass in those days. So you could climb over the stands. Anybody could go over the stands and the stands could go over, over onto the ice too. So did you see that a couple of times? Yes, fans <laughs> going on the ice. A couple of times, yes, uh, leaning right over and 
and hitting a guy as he skated across. <laughs> so there was uh, not very often, but you know. So I never would have thought about it, but I guess it would make sense. When they put glass in the rink, everybody was pretty happy about that. Yes, it was happy. It protected everybody. Because <laughs> there used to be guys leaning over and deliberately sticking an arm out as a player went by. Um, I won't mention the town uh, or where, but I've seen it happen. Uh, so anyway, um, where were we? We were talking about uh, the the year that we took a break. And that year, uh, Elmer Franks uh, came to me and said, we're looking for a director of the Northeast Alberta Midget Hockey League. Uh, and we want you to be the, the director. You, since you're doing nothing. <laughs> because I was, <laughs> and so that year I was uh, uh, director of the Northeast Alberta Midget Hockey League. Then the following year, uh, we decided the board decided to go for a junior A team, and we went to PA, and uh, we talked to um, spent uh, Terry Terry. What was Terry's last time? I don't remember now, but anyway, um, Simpson Terry Simpson. And uh, we negotiated, and then we went to Humboldt and waited for three hours because that's where the league meeting was, and they didn't want us because we were, we were so far um, uh, west. Uh, they didn't want us. Battleford had a team, uh, and I think because Battleford was there, they said, okay, it's only another hour and a half drive. We can make a swing, and that's how we got accepted. We were waiting on pins and needles. There was five of us who went to... Uh, PA and then went to Humboldt. Why did you go to PA first? Because PA was going into Major Junior and they were wanting to sell the team ah. and let the franchise go. Do you remember how much you... Did you have to pay for the franchise then? Um, I don't think so. I, th I, I can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember exact the details. They wanted us to buy their bus, I know, and it was a piece of uh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't buy the bus. Uh, I can't remember if we had to pay or not. I don't remember that. Do you but remember we negotiated, but they had to le let the franchise go somehow. Maybe we did pay something. I don't remember. Do you remember who the four guys w who were with you were? Yes, very well. Uh, Lloyd Tendick, uh, Joe Bellier. Um, he worked for the rapeseed plant. Uh, God, I'm having a blackout now. Uh, <laughs> myself, uh, um, uh, Glenn Wood, and oh, Norris Hartwell. There it is, the five of us. So, yeah, we went there. There was uh, Larry Leach was on the board. He didn't go with us. Uh, uh, there was uh, quite a few others on the board, but the five of us were chosen to go and negotiate and and uh, bring the team back. It's bring the team. Pretty unbelievable that a guy from India with no background in hockey had only seen his first sheet of ice six years prior, goes from managing a, a midget hockey league to being on the board that gets Lloyd its first junior team. Amazing, isn't it? Even I find it hard to believe after all these years. Well, I also managed Junior B when Stu Weishard, the regular manager, uh, could not go on road trips. I used to be the manager on road trips. 
I used to keep the guy. I had to keep guys like Roger Roberge uh, and and Murray Batty in line, uh, you know. Uh, many a time, I had to walk into their rooms and uh, take bottles away from them because those guys were 18, 19 year old. They could go and, buy and pick up bottles, uh, and it was not that we didn't allow drinking, but for game night. Of course not. So Stu and I used to go make sure curfew uh, was was on and uh, um, uh, look under the bed and find some lemon gin sometimes, <laughs> some beer. <laughs> it was fun. It was all fun. It was all fun. Was that a shock to you, a guy who'd gone through university swimming, then rowing, having a strict curfew at nine to see athletes do that? It was a little bit because, you know, when you rode um, or when you swam, uh, alcohol uh, and uh, smoking uh, was uh, just in the off-season if you had to do it because it was well known that alcohol and smoking uh, reduced your fitness. Uh, not not just one drink, but I'm talking of, you know, when you're when you're rowing uh, and you tie one on on a weekend, you lose fitness. So those were no-nos. Um, so uh, it was a little different uh, culture here. But um, you know, the way it was, that's the way it was. And I mean, some people smoked in dressing rooms, people smoked in, in my office as a doctor. In those days, we had ashtrays. In the doctor's office. In the doctor's office, ashtrays. In big Mike Red Iron, uh, some people may remember him, six foot six, indigenous person, Aboriginal person, uh, used to come and empty ashtrays at five o'clock and make damn sure that nobody smoked and, uh, and uh, uh, wrecked his clean ashtrays. He'll sit there till office closure, 5.30, and he'll sit in the waiting room making sure nobody smoked after five because he cleaned the ashtrays <laughs> and it's done. <laughs> it seems like that is something, you know, I, I remember going to restaurants. I remember going to the bars as an 18, 19-year-old here in town and how smoky it was. I think that's something we all remember. But I just, I can't remember that. Yeah. And it's almost a lifetime ago that you could smoke. Well, I mean, I work for Baker Hughes. And Baker Hughes, there's no smoking on our premises anymore. Yeah. So you can't smoke within the structure. You can't smoke within, right? You got to be out pretty much in the city street in order to have a smoke. Our manager smoked in our office. There's ashtrays everywhere. They smoke <laughs> on the bus? Uh, no, Larry didn't allow smoking on the bus. No smoking, no drinking on the bus. And uh, a nice little story. Uh, we bought some beer well put it this way i bought some beer to celebrate after we won the game uh, in edson because i knew we were going to win unfortunately we lost on the way back we were larry and i used to sit in the front uh, and, and uh, sometimes our our spouses came with us uh, just like uh, god redden he took over from larry uh, and uh, um, uh, we used to sit in the front, and Pat accompanied us on some road, some road trips. But anyway, uh, this this particular time, uh, Larry heard the tinkling of glass, and uh, 
he walked to the back, and there, there they were, Roger Roberts and Murray Batty, and uh, a few others, uh, opened the beer and going at it, and there was hell to pay for, hell to pay for, but it was it was okay. Um, they took it in their stride, and, and uh, of all people, Roger accuses me of teaching him how to drink alcohol. <laughs> when 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 he was alive, now he's no more now. But anyway, we had a great relationship with all those guys, all of them. The, 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 those days were really good. We were all together. Like I said earlier, we were a family. I still remember how close we are, and today we're still close. Um, uh, with with the Gervais brothers, uh, with Owen Noble, uh, you know. Um, Lots of people I can mention, but uh, we were close. Scott Kennedy, uh, we have names for all of them, uh, nicknames uh, for all of them. So it was fun. Did you ever learn to skate? Uh, I barely did, but I was terrified. <laughs> I had I had skates, and I went on. I've been on. I was on skates for about maybe seven or eight. Uh, times attempts I would say attempts and did I skate yeah I skated six feet seven feet eight feet never skated backwards but that's about it that's the best I could do an athlete like yourself who's played and done different things competitive you say you're adventurous you didn't look at ice and go you know what I can master this uh, you know uh, that's one of my biggest regrets that I didn't learn to skate um, I don't know what happened. Uh, I don't know if work came in the way because I was with these guys all the time. Yeah, I was at practices too because, as you know, I was single, footloose, fancy free. I was at practices. I was on road trips. I mean, uh, for some reason, I don't think they grabbed me because they were so intense on practicing that they didn't grab me on the ice and said, "Come on, doc, let's go for a skate." Um, so uh, I, I dropped the ball. And I, that was one of my biggest regrets to this day because I'd still be playing hockey right now. Let's talk about the Lancers. Okay, you mentioned going to PA, then going to Humboldt and sitting there. What was, uh, what was the first season of having junior A hockey and Lloyd like? Oh, it was, it was exhilarating because it was, uh, the crowds were there. Uh, because we had no hockey for uh, no junior B hockey here for a, for a whole year, so they were hungry, and uh, uh, we we had uh, uh, 1,600, 1,700 people in the early days filling the ring. But compared to the junior B team, when we had 2,500 uh, in the playoffs uh, against Vermilion, um, you know the rafters, the police, uh, the fire fire chief had to come and shut the doors. It wasn't that that big but it was a regular season we had 15 1600 people for games uh, and there was less on television too you know not like today there's too much on television to yeah. keep people home to keep people home absolutely keep people home and, and too many options right you can pretty much watch yeah. any game you want to watch yeah yeah exactly so there was less television there was less cable less channels in those days so people came out and celebrated and had fun and enjoyed themselves but uh, i think um, Actually, people are missing out when they don't go to hockey games because I think we still have good a good product. Hockey is really uh, 
a, a great game. It's unfortunate that they have other options at home. You mentioned when Lloyd played Vermillion and the and could you go the amount of fans in there? Could we just dive into that for two seconds? Yeah, seventh game of the playoffs. Junior Lo- B. Junior B. Okay, finals. Lloyd won three straight. Okay, in the playoffs. Okay, so it was just a formality going to Vermillion. We lost. <laughs> we had a home ice advantage. Vermillion came to Lloyd. 3-1 series, lost. We went to Vermilion. Must have been a packed barn in Vermilion. Yes, packed barn. Noisy, noisy, good hockey town. We went to Vermilion, lost three straight. So, series tied, three all. Final game, Lloyd Minster, seventh game. Now, is this first round of playoffs? Is this league finals? Finals. League finals. League finals. Up 3-0, lose three straight, game seven at the Civic Center. Yes. Ooh. Uh, you're setting it nicely here. I like this. Okay. And I'm not exaggerating. People were sitting on those rafters at the old Civic Center, standing on somebody's shoulders and sitting there. And you only hear stories like that. You, you know, uh, plugged to the rafters, people are actually sitting on the rafters because there was no place to be had. That place was built for 2,250 people. In the, and then there was over 2,500 people. And... Um, I came late, the uh, b- b- but just before the game, of course, and the uh, fireman won't let me in. I had a friend with me, and I said, look, I'm the physician for the team, and this is my assistant, and snuck in. And, of course, because I was physician, I would have got in anyway, and I snuck the friend in. It was that tight. The whole, everything was closed because it was a fire hazard, because people were already in. And it was a whale of a game. And it was great. And uh, uh, there was the uh, rivalry between um, uh, Roger and big Mike McNabb um, from Vermilion. And, uh, oh, it was fantastic. And that was good. And then we went to the, uh, that was the uh, the Northern Finals. So you went to the Southern Finals. So you win that, obviously. Oh, yeah, we won. And then the building went nuts? Nuts, nuts, absolute nuts, nuts. It was like Stanley Cup in Lloydminster because it, it was amazing. It was amazing. Well, and back then, Junior B would have been the ticket. It was. It was the ticket. It was the only, only show and only game in town. No, we had the Borough Kings, too. But um, it wasn't that much. Um, for the Border Kings as it was for Junior B. Mm-hmm. Did you go on to win then the, the, the main we won. We won the Alberta Championships. Then we went to Manitoba for the uh, Western Canadian Championships. And I think it was in Winkler, if I'm not mistaken. And I, we lost there. What a ride. Yeah, what a ride. Yeah. I love hearing the old stories of... Uh, how full an arena can get because you just don't see it. I shouldn't it's say you don't a, see it anymore, but in Lloyd you don't see it a whole lot. Yeah. Um, I had Trevor Redden who uh, did the play-by-play for the Bobcats there the year of the Royal Bank Cup. Now he's in PA and he showed me pictures of uh, PA versus Saskatoon. Uh, what's it? PA Saskatoon? Now I'm forgetting. Or Brandon. Or the finals, too. I yep. It might have been the finals against Vancouver. But people standing on the milk crates. Yeah. And he said he, he it was an old wives' tale, right? You talk about the rafters and yep. packed to the rafters. Yep. 
an old wives' tale. Oh, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And then yeah. he said he walked into that game and saw people running to their seats an hour before, and people who didn't get there at an hour before couldn't get seats, so they're standing on milk crates. And there ain't, like, two milk crates. We're talking, like, as far as the eye can see milk yeah. crates, just so they can see over the next person. The next time I saw our ring packed was the Allen Cup in Lloydminster when Fleury was here. And um, what's the chap from Montreal who used to play for Montreal? They both, oh, oh, oh begins with O. Anyway, um, <laughs> he's, he's of indigenous origin. Old track? No. No, uh, no, no. Oh, no. oh, crap. I know him because I looked after him when he was stabbed uh, by, with uh, a knife when somebody was stealing his car in Montreal. Uh, Gino. Gino Ojek. Ojek. Gino Ojek. Yes. And, and that was the next time. What? Back, what? How? You were in Montreal? What? Well, Gino Ojek. There's so many stories with hockey. See why I love, I love the game? <laughs> He was in a bar in Montreal and somebody was stealing his car and he went to attack the guy with the guy turned around and put a knife into him. Okay. So then he had to go to hospital uh, and then he, they explored the wound and then uh, they stitched him up and uh, he came to Lloydminster. Actually, uh, before the no, that was not the first time. The first time was when uh, with... Um, Oh, Redden. Wade? Wade. Lord. There you go. Wade, Wade Redden. Redden. Okay. Had a hockey school here. Okay, Indigen yeah. Indigenous hockey school. And Gino Ocek was there at the school, and that's when I first met him. And he had uh, had to have his stitches removed. From this knife wound? From this knife wound. And so he came to, came to see me and... Uh, I removed the stitches, and that's when we first met. And then we, of course, renewed our acquaintance uh, at the Allen Cup. But anyway, the Allen Cup was crowd. We are talking of crowds in the rink. That was electrifying. Well, and I, like I was saying about the crowds, um, I mean, you know, the NHL, you still get big crowds. But to think back in the day for a junior B team, you put it to the rafters or for senior hockey, right? Allen Cup, yep. Yeah. It was good. And Allen Cup hockey was fantastic, good, great hockey, great hockey. How many how many years were you on the board for the Junior A team in town? Uh, for probably three to four years. Why did you end up stepping away then? Because I had kids and they started playing hockey, <laughs> and I had to I couldn't attend meetings and I was busy in the hospital. I was doing my rounds. I was I was delivering babies. I was you know I was. Uh, uh, quite busy, you know, and uh, I ended up with uh, three kids playing hockey. So I, and uh, Sohail, my older son, uh, the first year was, uh, his home team was Polar Kings in, in, uh, Wainwright? In, in uh, no, in Paradise Valley. They were called oh, Paradise the, Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Polar okay. King, before okay. they moved to Wainwright. Before they moved to Wainwright. So that was his home rink. So. We, Why was he playing at a PV? He got cut here. Uh, it was the last cut. So, the Polar Kings wanted him, so he was midget, midget um, double A, and so rather than playing midget A, he uh, went to PV. PA, the, uh, PV. They asked. They asked for him. Sam Benzmiller, um, 
and uh, oh I can't remember the coach's name his face is so long ago but it'll come you know I got uh, I got uh, what do you call it um old timers <laughs> I think you're doing pretty dang good myself you're spitting out names left right and center yeah so anyway they wanted him and I asked them is he just going to warm uh, the bench or is he actually going to play and uh, Sam and the coach uh, assured me uh, that no he will get a regular shift like everybody else except uh, when the game is tied and we have a minute or two left and then we'll short shift so i said fine then he can come here and play and so he did and the next day he played for lloyd uh, they wanted him back here so so though i i couldn't be on on the board of the lancers and uh, also look after the kids did you still do any of the were you still the team doctor at that point yes i was still the team doctor i was still the team doctor how, I, how long were you the team doctor for how many years or do you know 41 years unbroken oh no one year with that that break of one year when i was uh uh when there was no hockey was so 41 years minus a year minus a year holy dinah that's pretty impressive yeah that was fun it was fun enjoyed it every minute of it any any memories stick out to you you know because i mean you've seen a ton of players yeah. a ton of coaches a yeah. ton of just management, you name it, go yeah. through. Yeah. Um, somebody who should have made um, uh, NHL um, uh, in the, when, when it was junior A was uh, Chris Barnes from Bonneville. Six foot, two and a half forward, uh, 215 pounds, lean. He skated so slow, looked like it. But he was overtaking everybody. He was overtaking everybody. Uh, that was in Junior A. In Junior B, it was Roly Gervais. He got called up twice. Uh, one year he lasted one week. The next year into Calgary uh, for uh, for Tier One. Um, major, so who, major Junior Roland Gervais. Yeah. No. Yeah. So Calgary. Do you remember the team? Um, can't remember which team it was. The second year. Uh, yeah. He was 17 years old now, and the second year he um, he lasted one month, and he wanted to come back to Lloyd. He was homesick, and he uh, had the uh, potential for going all the way in the NHL because he was such an all-rounded player. He could change the pace of the game. He was looking around. He and uh, I mean, he was a great forward, and he was just the right size, and he was wonderful, great hockey player. And Chris Barnes was another one who should have uh, made it. Um, then, of course, Brent Dallin. I thought he would have made it, but uh, uh, he came back and played, and he was one of the cores, anchors for our junior A team. The first person we we got and built the team around Brent Allen. And um, that was another success story. That first year was fantastic. So there was lots of people um, who could have gone places. And again, they didn't get the right opportunity. There was one fellow called Larry Clark, um, who again, was a great hockey player. He played with Tiger Williams uh, in Weyburn. And um, I've never seen anybody throw a hip check like him. He would send people flying right over the plexiglass. No, no plexiglass, over the boards. 
with a hip check. He'll just wait for them, hang on to the puck. He'll tell them to come to him and he'll just, just with a swing of his hip, gone. Literally flying over into the into the stands. So Played uh, hockey with Larry Clark's son. Pardon me? I played hockey with, with Larry, Larry Clark's, Clark's son. Yeah. 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 Larry Clark's great, great hockey player. But he was small then. But two years later, he was big. He grew. Well, you know, by the time he was 19, he was a, he was a, he was a big man. But again, opportunity slipped by. He would he was great. Why the Lancers? Why not the Blazers? Because the Junior B team was the Blazers, correct? Yeah. Um, after that fight, in the stands, there was a lot of public opinion against the Blazers. And for some reason, we thought we'll start afresh. Because everybody was called the Blazers in Lloydminster. Junior, everybody. So we put out uh, a competition uh, to see, pick a new name. And so that's how we became the Lancers. Then after a few years, we went back to Blazers. And then eventually we became the Bobcats. Correct. So, so where did the name Lancers come from? I think the high school had a Lancers team. And uh, some one person, they put a number of names and they decided, the board decided to choose Lancers. It was a catchy name and that's how they chose the Lancers. Well, you're wearing a jacket that I suspect there are only a few left. Very few left, correct. I, I, I couldn't find my blazer jacket with the old leather sleeves and the uh, black leather and the red. Uh, I couldn't find it. I was going to wear that one. Uh, but anyway, this was the next best thing. This is the first year of the 1982, so it still fits me. <laughs> <laughs> Being in Lloyd for now, what is that, 30, 40, 45 years? Yeah, 43 years. 43 years? 43 years. 44 years. 44 years. Well, what has been one of the big changes to come to Lloyd that you got to witness? One of the biggest ch changes, of course, to have so many paved streets that we didn't have when I first came. <laughs> uh, no, um, the multiplex uh, was is a nice facility. I regret that it didn't become the main arena and they did some retrofitting to the uh, old Centennial Civic Center to make it functional for uh, the, you know, the younger people. Um, uh, there was a move, but somehow the people uh, at that time decided this is the way it's going to be. That's a fantastic facility. Um, um, and all the stores that have come up, the box stores, all like there's no need for anyone to go to Edmonton to shop anymore. We have everything in Lloydminster. We have everything in Lloydminster, uh, whatever we need. Um, and uh, you know the the Synergy Credit Union building is is a really classy building. I I, I it really uh, get, uh, does Lloydminster proud. I think the build that building, and it's in a good location. Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. That is a it is a beautiful building. Yeah. And what, what, uh, I was going to say, uh, the, speaking of the Civic Center, uh, it sounds like its days are numbered now. Well, <laughs> you don't know what can happen. The Archie Millers was numbered. 
the days were numbered. When we were on the board of the Blazers, uh, we raised $25,000 that first year to re retrofit the Archie Miller. And they told us it's going to be torn down. So we're not going to waste money on it. <laughs> 25000 in 1977. And um, it's still going. So I don't know. Uh, it does need a major refitting. Uh, in, uh, but I don't know if uh, we went, it'll cost us, uh, I think, $30 million or at least $20 million to build another arena. Uh, uh, and with times are tough. I don't think we're going to see one myself in the next five years, five to ten years. You raise a good point with Archie Miller because the Archie Miller now is a, well, you talk to rec hockey players because, I mean, it doesn't have the stands for a junior team or anything. But uh, the ice, the dressing rooms now, the glass, everything is bar none like it is. It's beautiful. If the Archie Miller can be retrofitted, and I remember playing, I'm not playing, going with Sohail and the kids, the Archie Miller, uh, I carried my own heater, <laughs> <laughs> space heater, and everybody came around us. I was the most popular parent on the ice because I had, I had the space heater and uh, on a little uh, propane tank. And so if that can be retrofitted and still being used, now we're talking... 45 years later, yeah. when it was condemned and supposed to be torn down, the civic center is like new. No, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, there's lots of things. That was one thing that I was surprised that the Archimedes is still going strong. Oh, well, and better than ever, right? Yeah, yeah. But you talk about how cold that rink was. You raise a good point because there was only one other rink that held a candle to how cold that rink was, in my mind. Because uh, as a kid, you went skating in the Archie, and everything froze. Like your hands, you couldn't feel them. Your feet, you couldn't feel them. And as a hockey guy, that's almost unheard of because you're moving your body all the time. Usually your feet can get cold, but the rest of your body doesn't get that cold. I remember losing feeling in my hands in the Archie Miller. But the home on rink growing up as a kid, when it was minus 40 outside, it was minus 50 inside. Yes. I don't know what the tin did, but it like magnified it. Yes. Yeah. The Archie, you could see the nails. Uh, frost on the nails because there was no insulation outside or inside you could see the frost on every nail <laughs> <laughs> yeah so going back to civic center i i think it's got some life left but it it could definitely um, use another uh, if we if uh, we get some winning hockey here we will need more more seats um, without a doubt at least another 200, 300 more seats. Were you on the board who brought, or were you a part of the movement that brought the rowing club to Lloyd? I started the rowing club in Lloyd. Yes, you started, okay. I started the rowing club in Lloyd, and um, uh, we did very well for about 10 years. We produced a, uh, uh, a national champion in uh, in the singles, juniors, and uh, a silver medal. Uh, I, we also had uh, a young lady um, who went on to become the uh, captain of the Queen's University rowing, rowing team, the eight. Um, uh, and then uh, I, again, uh, I, was, I was 
working hard to keep it going, but I had some friends who helped, Barry Harpstead, Bart King, some of the names who helped along, Herb, Herb Swift, uh, and then Herb left town, uh, Barry Harpstead went on to become a chiropractor, he, cur he currently practices in Sherbrooke, and uh, I was left by myself, so I had to take a break. Then Morgan Mann showed up one fine day and said, Doc, we should do something about the rowing club because Morgan had built his house right next to the rowing club. And I said, Morgan, if you'll help me, let's get it going again. So when was the first stint? Uh, the club was, uh, I, I bought the boats in 1978. Oh, so right, pretty much right as you get here. Yeah. Once I decided I'm not leaving Lloydminster, I decided and bought boats from the Regina Rowing Club. And in uh, the f first first three years we were, or two years, we were in Sandy Beach. And then I found this uh, stretch, uh, ba it used to be called Baby's Lake. The real name, I think, is Killarney Lake. Uh, and, uh, and I found that nice straight stretch of water uh, with no, no boats and no power boats. And so I said, that's where we'll go. And um, and that's where we uh, moved, and we stored our boats at Ralph De Rosier's uh, farm. Uh, we hung them up uh, with pulleys uh, on, in his barn, uh, his hay barn, and we used to take him down. And uh, Mark McCall uh, brought his uh, uh, John Deere tractor and cut a path from the barn to the water, and we were on the west side of the lake. Then we, a few years later, we built a dock and went to the east side of the lake. And then after that, we moved and built our own building uh, further north where uh, Morgan Mann lives right now. And um, that's where we are. So when you started the club, you mentioned like winning and winning high competitions. Yes. How many people were in the rowing club? Oh, we had uh, maybe many of the... RCMP members were members of the rowing club. Uh, there must have been at least 15, 15 to 20 people. We, had to t we only had one boat, so we had to take shifts. So people had to book a boat and take the first shift and the second shift. So the first shift was at five and the second shift was at seven. How many in a boat? Uh, the, there was the four and then there was a, a two man and a single. So, uh, seven people could row at one time if they went out on the water at the same time, yes. I know about as much about rowing as I know about cricket. So, when it comes to rowing, in your mind, is it easy to row in a one, a four? What's, what's the... Um, the single, the one man, single, yeah. is a very hard boat to row in. Because at its widest is where your hip sits. It's about 12 inches wide. Okay. And it narrows to a point on both ends. Right. And it's like walking a tightrope. And the two oars you have are the ones that you use to balance the boat along with your body uh, and your legs. Uh, but mostly the oars. So you have to... You have to uh, um, uh, uh, it's very tricky. So... The best boat to start off is a four. And this is where there's some debate whether the four-man boat, uh, whether it's with two oars each, when you call it a quad, 
or uh, straight four when each person has one or. One or. Um, that's that's easy. But uh, uh, similarly, a, a double where each person has two oars each also is easier. But when you have four people, it's a heavier boat and and it's 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 less less tippy. And um, so uh, my preference would be if I want to teach somebody to go in in the in the quad or in the straight four. When you were, I didn't ask this back, when you were in India and competing, what did you compete in? Were you in a four? I was in a, in a straight four and a single. I competed in a single. And what were you winning at? I won both uh, both top championships in the four and in the single. What do you mean top championships? What's the top championship? The, the, the one within all the clubs, which is called the um, uh, Amateur Rowing Association of the East. That was the name of the regatta, Amateur Rowing Association of the East. And you won that in the singles? I won the singles and the four. Two years in a row, I won in the four. In the first year, I was a rookie, more or less, and I lost in the semifinals. Uh, the next year, I won. In so the is, is that for all of India then? All of India, correct. So you're the national champion of India in rowing? Yes, I was. How the hell did we miss that, Doc, going an hour ago? You just not going to bring that up? Well, wasn't that important. It wasn't so long ago. I was twenty-three years old. It's a long time ago. So you had never rode before. You swam. Yes. I Walk in, stumble in. At age, they say, at, "Hey." At age twenty. Hey, maybe you should try rowing. You go. Sure, I don't know if I can. My parents don't know if they're going to let me. And how many years later you're a national champ? In the four, two years later, and in the single, three years later, 70, 72 and seventy-three. Holy Dinah! That's pretty cool. It is cool, but I, uh, I took I took up rowing quite seriously. I used to spend six days a week in the rowing club, and I. I uh, the one year in 1971 um, uh, I could not compete uh, because of my exams and it, my coach tried to change the regatta the national regatta he tried to change it by one week after I'd finished my exams I could row and they said no and so that year we had a fantastic team and uh, we would have won it that year uh, like uh, 70, I rode 70 and 71. This is 71 I'm talking about. So actually, three years going back, I won the third year and the fourth year because 70, 71, 72, 73. So anyway, uh, make a long story short, you had to change the team and uh, they lost in the finals. Um, who knows? They may not, may I still lost if I was there, but uh, my coach said, uh, really missed me. So uh, it was good times, yeah. We broke all records, that, that crew, uh, when we were together. What do you... You broke all records. So are you still in the record? Probably not. Probably not in the record books? Um, uh, that I'm, long I'm ago, not, you think? I'm, I'm not sure if anybody has done it at the club level then. Since then, of course, politics has got involved in rowing in India. They became... Uh, part of a bigger movement, rowing federation, became part of the Olympic movement, and now they're all fighting with each other. So you're telling me you could still hold a record over there for rowing? 
the four, yes, in the four, with four other, with three others, and 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 uh, and a coxswain, one who steers the boat. Well, isn't that just dandy? I I can't <laughs> believe we almost missed that. I'm glad I I. Uh... We get somehow stumbled our way back onto that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's something. I was lucky. That's all. I was lucky, and sounds, I think I think I worked hard. Also, I. It uh, sounds like a little bit of luck, sure, but uh, I would say there had to have been hard work yeah, goes I, into that. I think I did work hard. I actually did. With with the rowing club here in Lloyd, is it tie? Is there no school kids? Like, I don't remember. And the reason I ask this is, growing up in school. I don't remember, hey, you can go be a part of the rowing club ever being an option. This year and last year, we've got some school kids. Uh, thanks to Michelle Lopez, the president of the rowing club, uh, Morgan Mann uh, also, uh, we have some school kids. And this uh, summer, uh, hopefully, physical distancing uh, would be relaxed uh, because we sit quite close to each other in the boat. Uh, uh, I think we will have a good uh, school schoolboy and uh, schoolgirl season. How many how many people are in the club right now? Oh, we're back to active people, maybe uh, ten to twelve, but membership maybe fifteen to twenty. And what what does it cost to get in the the rowing club? Um, for uh, adults, um, it's $200 a year. Um, and for students, I can't remember uh, what the membership is for students, but it's much less. And does that get you access to the boats whenever you want to go use them? Or is it once a night or once a week? No. Um, if you are an accomplished oarsman, you can go use it anytime, but we don't recommend going alone because in case you drown, not drown, tip the boat, let's say, yeah. we, we are required to have a safety boat. And life jackets are cumbersome, but there are the new life jackets which you could row with. So they might relax the rules, but according to the uh, provincial and national rowing associations, you have to have a rescue boat. So um, when I rode, I went alone sometimes, nobody on the water. But I was confident in a single. It was okay. And I knew how to swim, so it wasn't bad. Um, so, but you, even if you know how to swim, you could get hit on the head when the boat tips over yeah. accidentally. So it's not safe, I think. Hmm. Rowing. That's interesting. And uh, is there like a stereotypical person you look for? I know you were saying in India they were looking for a tall over a certain weight. Is that still... Is it's, that... it's nice to be tall because you have a longer reach, um, but not necessarily. Um, you can be strong, but now they also have different classes. They have lightweights and heavyweights. They never had that before. So the heavyweights are all those big guys who are six foot plus, and the lightweights are, are uh, you know, anywhere from five, nine to six. So they've split it. So there's lightweights and heavyweights. Uh, heavyweight guys are, some of them are six foot six, 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 six foot seven, and they need special boats and 
special rigging, as you call it, uh, to rig the outriggers so it suits their style and their size. I had you written down, well, and, I, and then I'm written down, that the second year you were in Lloyd, you started to connect with people with disabilities. Did I write that down? That correct? is correct. What? Uh, I, I, again, was asked to sit on the board as a physician for what is now called the B. Fisher Center. Okay. So I was on the board of the B. Fisher Center for 13 years. Um, and uh, it gave, working with people with disabilities uh, gave me an, uh, an anchor, a value that all people are equal and needed to be treated fairly and included in everyday life, uh, regardless uh, of their disability, whether it was physical or intellectual. And people in the B. Fisher Center had intellectual disabilities. Um, and it really taught me something um, and um, grounded me in, in being basically what's uh, kids know in the playground what's not fair and what's fair. You know, children know that uh, uh, among themselves, uh, what is fair and what is not fair. Uh, and uh, as adults, we start dividing ourselves into groups. And so the, I really learned a lot from people with disabilities. How about human rights activism? That started with my work with people with disabilities and I realized that human rights are indivisible. Um, what's good for you uh, is also good for somebody else, um, regardless of uh, color, uh, age, uh, gender, marital status, uh, uh, any of those uh, reasons. And so, um, it started in 1983 when I was appointed to a commission uh, in Peter Lloyd's government, uh, and Bud Miller was the one who got me on it. To uh, uh, after uh, a teacher Kikstra in Eckville uh, was denying the Holocaust and said it never happened, and taught his students that, and so uh, Peter Lloyd decided that this is not right, that students should be taught uh, that uh, there was no such thing called a genocide um, of people in the, by the Germans, uh, by the Nazis, I shouldn't say Germans, by the Nazis, because they are different. Uh, they are a different breed of people, the Nazis. And so um, that led me to tolerance and understanding is what the name of the commission was called. And we traveled all over Alberta uh, actually, we used uh, Peter, the cabinet plane, and there was 12 of us. We went the length and breadth of Alberta. We drove uh, where the plane couldn't land or where it could land. We sometimes drove an hour and a half, two hours. And uh, uh, after that was done, I thought it was done, I got a call uh, to sit on the Human Rights Commission uh, from a friend. He said, if you sit on it, I will sit on it. And so I got uh, on the Human Rights Commission. But all my... Fairness uh, and my growing up and my values, I have to say, started with working with people uh, in the Beefisher Center. 
that's kind of grounded me uh, in in the game of fairness and equity. It's probably something a lot of people should just volunteer and help out with on a. It's not like a full time thing, but just to open some eyes. Well, that's what community is, isn't it? That's how this country was built. This country was built not by paid people, by volunteers. You know, people pitched in. You pitched in for your neighbors. I mean, you know, if you haven't finished your harvest, your neighbor comes and helps you uh, without even sometimes being asked. Uh, say, hey, I've finished my harvest. That's how the whole, the the West was built, The Canada was built. And volunteerism, I think uh, uh, you get more out of, Giving, you hear, hear, you hear that cliche all the time. People say, "Oh, you get more out of giving," but it's true. It's very true. You get more out of giving of yourself. Uh, and actually, I would say I got more out of it than whatever I did in life. I got more out of it. And there's something to be said about volunteering. I was talking with um, Les and Marilyn Mitchell, so my brothers in laws. In laws. Thank you. And uh, they're around your age, and they still volunteer at, like, everything in Kids Coyote. And, you know, I mean, young, I, I really enjoy volunteering, but you kind of wonder if, you know, when you hit a certain age or your kids get so busy, if you ever just stop volunteering and let the younger people do it or whatever. And I sat down and uh, recorded them uh, for their family, and I asked them that question. And they had a lovely answer, and I'm probably won't do it justice but it was something along the lines of they enjoyed volunteering they enjoyed seeing their community prosper but they really enjoyed the people they met volunteering and so they looked at it instead of going out to the bar for a night with their friends they had a way to go out with their friends and help make the community better and so they had a tight-knit group that all volunteered together and I thought it was oh, that's brilliant because that in Hillmon where I do 92% of my volunteering right now I got a group of people I work with that are just fantastic and it doesn't make it feel like work and if you can ever find that you can see where you can do that for the next 50 years and it never ever becomes work I couldn't agree more I couldn't agree more um, that's exactly been the story of my life um, I, I will never stop volunteering maybe a little less um, as we get older because we're getting older and don't have the energy or things like that but uh, or you like to travel but I couldn't agree more with Lester and Marilyn Mitchell definitely 100% well you're <laughs> giving me two names I got he said that you knew and I don't know if this meant just had met him or if you knew them personally but Brian Mulrooney was one of them did you actually know him, or did you just meet? Well, I would say the 18th I, I Prime would Minister say we I knew, would say we knew each other because we met about five times in okay. di different uh, different uh, venues. Uh, as a matter of fact, I gave his uh, uh, my jacket to his wife in Vermilion when he was uh, running for prime minister. Uh, he was there was a rally in Vermilion and it was cold, and she was shivering there. And this was, I think, in June. So I took out my jacket and gave it to her. And, and, and uh, years later, he remembered that. He remembered, said, you're the guy who gave my wife a jacket in Vermilion. I said, that's right, that's true. And then we met a few more times. So I won't say we're friends, but if he sees me, he might, he might remember. The he prime minister say, had a rally in Vermilion? Yes, before he became prime minister. 
for this writing. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. that makes sense. Okay. Be- before he became prime minister. I was thinking prime minister in Vermilion. That, yeah, geez, yeah, that'd yeah, be a sight. Yeah. Well, no, before he became prime minister, he, he the rally was in Vermilion. Yeah. The Conservative Party got together there. And then the other name he uh, mentioned was Don uh, Mazinkowski. No, Don and I are friends. We still are friends. We still keep in touch. Uh, I got involved, again, politics, volunteering. Yeah. Politics brings you closer to people, gives, gives you lifelong friends. Uh, just like I met Bud Miller, we became very good friends. Um, I delivered the eulogy in Bud Miller's uh, funeral. Um, so Don Mezinkowski and I are still friends. I still call him every two months or sometimes a month, and we keep in touch. Well, and he would call me a friend too. I'm sure. I've been here. We've been here for an hour and forty five minutes now. So I'm going to go into the the crude master final five, uh, the last five questions. Uh, we can go as long or short as we want, but they're just five kind of. Um, Questions directed uh, to end off this. Well, this has been really interesting. So I, think, I hope it's not boring for the people who are listening. Oh, no, 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 no. If I'm sitting here and I'm looking at also, I'm going, holy crap, an hour and 45 minutes have blown by? Believe me, that's saying something. It's been really fascinating, to be uh, completely honest. You're the... Now, i got to think about this. But I want to say the first guest I've had on who was born and raised in a different country that isn't North America. So... Somebody who's come from, I mean, you just come from a different um, life, essentially. Um, So the first question is, if you could sit down with one person, present or past, who would you want to sit down and have a, well, what's your, what's your poison that you have? Is it coffee or is it something a little stiffer? Well, coffee. Okay, Uh, well, there you go. If you could have one person to sit down across the table like this. To have a coffee with, who would you pick? Very hard question. But I would probably pick Don Mazinkowski because <laughs> there's so much to learn, so much to learn from him, so much he has done in his life. Uh, I, I would... Uh, and for the people who don't know who Don Mazinkowski is, he was a cabinet mis- minister under Brian Mulroney. He was a deputy prime minister of Canada, and he was called the Minister of Everything. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. He was he was the most respected politician in Ottawa, and that came from a policeman who used to work here and who moved to Ottawa. And he said he's the most respected politician in Ottawa. So we, are, we should be proud of Don Mazinkowski. He's an icon. And where is he from? Vagerville. Vagerville. Actually, uh, Viking. And then Vagerville. If you could take a time machine and go anywhere, anytime, to see any event, where would you go? That might be tougher than the one I just asked. I would like to go to the Montreal Olympics, 76. Because it's in Canada. And uh, I think... uh, while, while rowing did well, um, uh, even in 1952 uh, in the Helsinki Olympics, I think we did very well in the 76 Olympics. So uh, that would be we, uh, a, a, a place to be. Did any of your rowing club ever go on to be in the Olympics? No. No. 
politics came in the way if if because when you were rowing in india you would have never had a chance at the olympics then correct no but when i came in first time in 74 before i went to england uh, i was wandering in vancouver uh, having won the national championship looking for where the canadian team team was training and um, and i couldn't i did not know where they were because i was going to say i'm i don't want to work i don't have to work i was already a doctor i want to row and uh, but i didn't nobody directed me to where they were training in 1974 so uh, i would have loved to i i think i would have had a good chance of making the team 5 foot 11 and a half and i was 195 pounds good size i i would have made it to at least had a good chance you've traveled a lot of countries how many countries have you been to in the world give or take oh god well, let's throw out about at least 20 20 countries at okay least. Yeah. what's one country you haven't been to that you would like to go to turkey ooh turkey yeah because crossroads of europe yeah lots and lots and lots of history, history there history history i like history turkey would be is on my bucket list but seeing the world the way it is and how unsettled places are i wouldn't want to go on my own i probably would like to go with somebody who is from turkey who can steer me off the dangerous spots what uh, what part of history are you most fascinated by uh, the older history and the history of how uh, countries evolved and and the old civilizations how they lived so for example i i've been to italy been to rome uh, you know i liked i went to cairo egyptian civilization yeah. so you know that kind of stuff it, the british like the museums you know again good history there I presume you read books and I'm going to yes. assume a lot of books. What have been and I won't narrow it down to one because I know that'll be pretty tough on you, but if there's a couple books that, you know, along your path, you've picked up and been like, "Holy Dinah, that was a good book." What are some books? Two books. One. Okay. Ne- uh, Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom. And the other one, very recently, Ken Dryden's book Game Changer. Okay. Yeah, very well, uh, maybe that 3 or 4 years old actually. I have a copy of it in in my shelf there. Um talks about hockey and uh, how the game has changed and how the injuries have uh, increased and how you could prevent them and not wreck the game of hockey. He comes up with solutions too. Just not complaints. Uh it started with all the 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 brain injuries and the, the fights and uh it's a great book for any hockey enthusiast uh i would recommend that all i can think of is i don't want problems i want solutions yes he's got solutions for it too well your final question before i let you go if you could have been a doctor for any sports franchise what one would you have wanted to be i would have probably um any sports franchise 
Any sport. Any sport. Yeah. Any sports franchise. You could have went home and been cricket. See, see like, <laughs> like, like rowing, there is no franchise of rowing. They're still amateurs. Okay. There's no such rowing. But you could be the doctor for the Canadian rowing, rowing club. Rowing team. I, I, I did apply. Uh, when did I, you? Yes, when I first came. Um, but uh, the big city folks usually got the first crack kick at, at it. it. Yeah. The crack at it. So the next one franchise would, if I wanted to be a doctor, I'd probably be the Edmonton Oilers. Well, that's not a bad Because it's close choice. to home. Yeah. yeah, close to home. Edmonton Oilers would be my choice. To go all the way back to where I started you with, with India, what's the biggest sport there? Is it cricket? It's cricket. And what do what is the fanfare like for a cricket game over in India? Like, comparison? Is there anything... Like is it a a football game or like uh, between seventy thousand to a hundred thousand people for a cricket game? Depending on the stadium. And how long a cricket game lasts? Well, one, once upon a time they used to be five days, but now one day games. So, growing up, were they five day games? Growing up, it was five day games. And you get seventy thousand people watching that? Yes, they do. But it's a it's a giant picnic. How is that entertaining? 50 to 70 when I grew up because the stadiums are not that big, but now they build bigger stadiums. So now 70 to 100,000 is quite common because it's one-day games. It's just one day. And it's fast and furious and aggressive ho- uh, cricket. I'm saying hockey. Aggressive <laughs> cricket. Uh, <laughs> you know, people take chances and they score and they're not conservative. So it's quite exciting now. Uh when, when I grew up, uh, uh, if I went to two of the five days, that was a big deal because it was sometimes very boring. The games would uh, uh, end, uh, end in a draw. Now, you don't go to a game where nobody wins. It's boring. So that's the way cricket was, but not anymore. It's, it's probably uh, on a par with the, how much the players are made with basketball and, uh, and uh, the NFL. Players make a lot of money now. For cricket? For cricket. Really? Yeah, because they have it in, in all the Commonwealth countries. All the Commonwealth countries. West Indies, Australia, New Zealand, India, Sri Lanka. Uh, you go in, uh, in, uh, South Africa, uh, England. Uh, I mean, it's big. So growing up in school, did you play cricket in school? Did they have like a school team of cricket? Yes, they had a school team. Would you play they a stayed- five-day game? Um, no, we, we just played one day games we, because it was not five days in school. That's that's professionals played five days. We we would play a day. Well, oh, no, two days. Sometimes it took two days to play. Yeah, it did take two days sometimes uh, f- uh, because you had to finish a certain number of overs and an over is six, six times the fellow throws the ball at you. Six times the fellow throws the ball at you. So it's called overs. So you had to play a certain number of overs. So sometimes it took two days to finish it. Hmm. Could probably have a two hour podcast on cricket, to be completely honest. That's <laughs> <laughs> it's very popular now in, in many parts of the world. Yes. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming in and uh, 
Really enjoyed this. Really enjoyed uh, talking with you, hearing a bit about your life and uh, time. Well, I mean, a lifetime now in Lloyd and some of the history of the hockey and just the rowing and everything else. It's been really uh, fascinating for me. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm a fixture in this community now, and uh, I enjoy it. It's one of the the best communities. I believe, and I normally tell my friends in Central Canada that Lloydminster is the capital of Western Canada and should be the capital of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Raph. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, folks. Thanks again for joining us today. If you just stumble on the show and like what you hear, please click subscribe. Remember, every Monday and Wednesday, a new guest will be sitting down to share their story. The Sean Newman Podcast is available for free on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever else you find your podcast fix. Until next time.